What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby, and on this episode of Code Switch, we're rolling out an encore. We're bringing you one of our favorite episodes from the Code Switch archives. It's about the documentary from ESPN, OJ Made in America. And it's about OJ Simpson, his incredible rise and his sordid fall from grace. And it's also, importantly, about the strange and fascinating story of OJ Simpson's blackness. OJ was saying, I want to be judged not by the color of my skin. I want to be judged by the content of my character and most of all, the caliber of my competence. I think I'm the greatest football player that this country has ever seen. That's all I want to be judged by. That was a clip from the documentary. And OJ was apparently like just really straight up about this. He told his friends all the time, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And so I talked with the filmmaker Ezra Edelman about how OJ... This huge sports star and cultural figure tried to position himself outside of race. He created this idea of, I'm going to protect mine. I'm all about me. I'm all about sort of furthering my image to make myself palatable to everyone in America, to be safe so I can be famous and I can be rich. All right, so we're going to hear a lot more from Ezra about the making of O.J. Made in America. But first, we should lay out some of the backstory. And if you know anything about the O.J. Simpson murder case, beyond the fact that O.J.'s estranged wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ron Goldman were killed, and that O.J. was tried and acquitted for their murders, you know that race was a big part of that story. Brown and Goldman were white. O.J. Simpson was black. But remember, this is the cat who was saying, I'm not black. I'm O.J. So let's go back to way before the trial of the century, before that day in June of 1994, when he was in the white Ford Bronco being chased by cops at slow speed for several hours on national television. Let's go all the way back, all the way back to O.J. Simpson's childhood. So he grew up in this rough part of San Francisco where his neighbors were, other struggling black families that had left the South looking for a better life. And so O.J. left San Francisco to play football at the University of Southern California. And that's when O.J. blew up. That's when O.J. starts becoming O.J., He wins the Heisman Trophy. He joins the NFL. He becomes a superstar running back, a huge celebrity, a respected brand, a household name, the dude in the Hertz car commercials. And that's how he ended up living in one of the fanciest white neighborhoods in Los Angeles, in the same city where the Watts riots happened, where Rodney King was beaten, a city where the cops had a long history of being terrible to black people. But OJ purposely kept his distance from all that racial stuff. That was until the murder trial. And then suddenly it became really, really important for that jury and the whole world to see O.J. as black. And we're going to talk about how that happened with the filmmaker Ezra Edelman after a short break. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to LearnVest.com slash CodeSwitch. If you ever wondered, what podcast should I listen to? The Big Listen is ready to help. It's one of NPR's newest podcasts, and host Lauren Ober introduces you to podcasts you probably haven't heard of and gives you the inside scoop on shows you already love, like the one you're listening to right now. When you want something new, find The Big Listen on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. All right, y'all, we're back. 
let's get to my interview with the filmmaker Ezra Edelman. And we need to mention a few important things here up top. First of all, O.J. Simpson was not interviewed for this documentary. He is currently serving 33 years in prison for robbery and kidnapping for like an unrelated case. Edelman reached out to him, but O.J. declined to talk to him. And also a warning later in this episode, you're going to hear some racially charged language. All right. So now to Ezra Edelman. He and I started out talking about what motivated O.J.? Well, I'm going to resist the opportunity to play a psychiatrist, but um, I do think by the choices that he made, it seems very clear that there's this pattern of, for lack of a better phrasing, moving on up. I mean, I look at his life in some ways as like these rungs that he keeps progressing from one to the next to the next. And so whether it's first, yes, transcending the poverty, um, then it's transcending the blackness. And at a certain point, it's like, oh, transcending being an athlete. And then it's like, oh, maybe at a certain point it's transcending being, you know, just a sort of celebrity because of his his athletic gifts and fame, Mm -hmm. which is now I want to be a serious actor. There's a sense of his continual desire to be legitimized or to further legitimize himself. And you wonder, you know, I wonder, it's impossible to know how someone who had everything come so easy to him and he was so gifted, preternaturally so and the world was just laid at his feet in many ways because of those gifts not just his athletic gifts but his looks and his charm his charisma yeah yeah i mean all of that i think allowed him to sort of you know go through the world in a very easy way and i think that you wonder what happens after you are the best at this thing and you know everyone kisses your ass because of it and mm-hmm. then even if you attain this fame you don't get to be that in this other arena oh i'm not a good actor or I'm not as smart as these other people in business. And what does that do to you when you still have the same ego and you still have the same ambition? Where do you go in your head to try to sort of still be that guy? These are the questions I'm trying to explore without having any answer for you. I think that that's something that we're really trying to just present his sort of evolution as a character in the world and to have a viewer sort of absorb it to make their own, to draw their own conclusions. I'm going to ask you this question about the idea that O.J. transcended, could was trying to transcend race. It seemed to be like the template that, you know, Michael Jordan used later um, mm-hmm. or tried to use later. Tiger Woods definitely tried to use it, tried to employ mm-hmm. this thing. And so he was like a just deeply apolitical, at least in his public life. I don't think I appreciated the extent to which O.J. was the the first dude to do He was do the that. pioneer. Yeah. He was the pioneer. He, he broke the mold. But here's the thing. Before the Hertz ad, again, the dude was in Chevrolet commercials and R.C. Cole commercials before he played it down the NFL. I mean, like, I'm fascinated by that. How does a guy end up in national TV ads before he's played professional football as a black athlete and there's no black athlete who's ever been a corporate sponsor in that way? Like, I'm amazed by that. And to your point, he really did create this paradigm that begat Michael Jordan, who begat Tiger Woods. I look at OJ's sort of trajectory as, you know, you look at sort of our culture. He created this idea of, I'm going to protect mine. I'm all about me. I'm all about sort of furthering my image to make myself palatable to everyone in America, to be safe so I can be famous and I can be rich. And that's something that is a model that people use going forward. And we see that literally in the Hertz ad. When you're in a rush, take it from O.J. Simpson. There's only one superstar in rent a car, Hertz. You see O.J. darting to this airport. Before you get there, your forms fill out, cars pre-assigned. So there was this conscious decision in the production of that commercial that there could be no other black people in the ad besides O.J. Simpson because they needed to make O.J. safe for white people. What do you make of that? 
it seems bizarre in 2016 that someone would have to go out of their way to make sure that, you know, this wouldn't be interpreted a certain way in 1975 that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are you surprised that this was something that they even thought about? Is that surprising to you? Uh, I guess it isn't terribly surprising that you're like, okay, we need to have literally surround him, like put him in a universe full of white people. I guess it's a surprising, I guess I understand this in the context of the documentary now, but like that he would go along with it. There couldn't be just one other Negro like in the background somewhere, you know? Oh, like, but I think that I'm sure that it made OJ feel good. I mean, look, you can interpret the, the statement that he makes when he's leaving his house on June 17, 1994, when he looks around and says, what are all these niggers doing in Brentwood? Well, what's that all about? OJ says that to the police uh, after he finally surrenders himself to them, um, back when he's back in Brentwood, after the conclusion of that long, slow-speed police chase. After he's already been arrested and all those people were in, around his house. He had asked me to stay with him throughout the process. I promised him I would stay with him. I said, it's time. To, I got to handcuff you now. You need to be handcuffed. I'm sorry. This is the way it works. And as we take off, Simpson is amazed at the crowds. Lots of black black people. and Black and white. He just couldn't believe there was this many people there. In Brentonwood, which is a, it's basically an all-white um, little area and, and a sleepy area, and there was all these young, especially black folks there, cheering him on. And so when he leaves, you know, in the car, he, one of the first things he says to Peter Wireeater, who is the negotiator, and he says, what are all, what are all these niggers doing in Brentwood? Was he, I mean, is was it, he oblivious it, to, like, the massive outpouring of, like, support by black people on the streets? I mean, look, he's calling people. He's on the phone with the police. He has a gun. I'm sure he's not in the, the most stable of mindsets. Sure. So that he might not have noticed all those people or, you know, who they were demographically would not shock me. During the police chase, you see his celebrity sort of coming to bear on the way they treated him. Zoe Tour, um, I'm going to just, I just want to uh, lay out that scene. So Zoe Tour is the helicopter pilot who was the first person to find O.J. Simpson in his white Bronco on the, on the freeway. She says this is not the way police chase with anyone else would look. I've covered so many of these things. This was not usual police behavior. If O.J. Simpson were black, that wouldn't have happened. He'd be on the ground getting clubbed. In fact, she had shot a whole video that she sold with police chases that ended in policemen, you know, cars ramming into suspects' cars and getting them on the ground and beating them. You know, and that really is about celebrity. And you wonder, you know, obviously O.J.'s sort of way of going through the world and distancing himself publicly as far as, you know, talking about matters of race, that was distinct. But you wonder if you were black and a celebrity, how normal that treatment is. I'm sure there are plenty of incidents where black people who are celebrities might get profiled and pulled over before then they realize who they are. And then, you know, but in that way, I think it was more OJ's celebrity. And and, and by the way, not just his celebrity, but it's like, his celebrity was predicated on this goodness. Everyone loved him. It wasn't just he was famous. Yeah, he'd engendered so that, a bunch of goodwill, right? Yeah, and that sp- spoke to the shock that we all felt. It was like, this couldn't, This is impossible that this dude is capable of these things because he's never publicly shown anything to make us think that he has that side, despite right. him playing the most you know, violent game we have in our culture, right. other than boxing. And so you wonder how much it's you know the, the pure celebrity of him. I think it was more that than any chumminess he had with the police, for mm-hmm. instance. 
um, as far as the treatment he received on June 17th. But it's one of the reasons why this thing is so bizarre. One of the scenes that, I mean, I can't stop talking about the scene, was um, this moment in which the defense takes the jury, the jurors, the jury is mostly black, to O.J.'s house. And the defense team has basically rearranged his house in a way um, to look like a black person's house. Like, O.J. didn't have many pictures of black folks in his house at all. And so the defense team comes into his house, puts up pictures of O.J. with black folks, puts up portraits, Norman Rockwell painting, the problem we all live with, Ruby Bridges <laughs> desegregating the school on his wall. And I guess it came from Johnny Cochran's office. That's correct. And so... Just that moment was so like they had to dig in the crates to find pictures of OJ with black people was so bananas. I mean, that was like he didn't even have pictures of black folks just like laying around. They had to search for them. When you would walk up the grand staircase, there was a large wall with pictures of the family, pictures of friends, pictures of OJ's career. Problem was, the overwhelming majority of pictures were of Caucasian friends and colleagues of his. We had an African-American jury, and we wanted to make sure that the home setting would reflect the themes that we wanted to reflect. We took all of his white friends down, put all of his black people up, pictures he probably had never seen before. Because that's what we were told the jury would identify with. We made him blacker. I mean, look, in some ways it's like, it speaks to the savviness, if not deviousness of the defense. And so it's like, you do what you need to do to, you know, win the case. To me, like the pictures are weirdly a lot less egregious than the painting. Um, because those were still pictures that OJ was in and they were existed. Like, I don't know if they were buried underneath the basement. They were just, they were there somewhere. So they were there to be put up. So obviously it's, you know, it's devious to take down all those photos, which were the ones that OJ wanted to display prominently, you know, on that stairwell in his house. And so that obviously is a misrepresentation of, you know, OJ's world and his house and how he presents himself to the world. But it's almost like, Going back, it's the it's the appropriation of the struggle and of the movement and of a girl like Ruby Bridges walking into her school in 1960 in New Orleans, and you're putting that up at the top of his staircase as if OJ gives a shit. That's what's messed up about that. You know, the fact that the fence even like would go there and would know to go there, it's brilliant. Um, it's hilarious, but it's brilliant. Marsha saw the wall and she said carl you know damn well he has never had this many black people on his wall in his entire life marcia what are you talking about how dare you accuse us of such things i was miserable i was angry that is very dirty pool i found that scene so fascinating and dark um just because, I mean, O.J. had a black family, right? I mean, you would think that he would have... Well, that, by the way, that's the whole thing about all this conversation. We can keep talking. It's like, you know, and a lot of people say, O.J. didn't want me black or white. It's like, O.J. was black. I don't think you would ever hear him say... I mean, like, he says it publicly in that I'm not black, I'm O.J., but it's more about how sort of 
weirdly narcissistic and egotistical and all about himself he is. But I don't think you would sit in there talking to OJ and him, he wouldn't say, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. He's black. He knows he's black. And so, like, but it's just like the choices that he made publicly, you know, belied that notion. So, I mean, do you think he do you think he knows he's black? I mean, yeah, it, it seemed like he was engaged in this, you know, decades long project to minimize that as much as possible. Oh, I th- look, this is where I wish I could be drawing upon, you know, all those hours of conversations I had with him. Um but, uh, yeah, I think he always knew he was black. I think he might have had this weird ambition and notion of himself as being, you know, transcending race um, and thinking that he just doesn't want to be defined by his blackness more so than someone of him being like, I'm not this. Even with the sort of lengths that he went to publicly sort of distance himself um, and to not be defined by his blackness, I don't think that OJ, for instance, wanted to be white. I don't believe that. I think he, OJ just wanted to live and do whatever the hell he wanted to do. And if that was living in a white world, I don't think he was like trying to lighten his skin. I don't believe that. He went to that extent. I just think it was something he didn't want to be burdened by or talk about in any form, any time, in any way. So the title OJ Made in America, how do you want the title of the documentary to be interpreted or understood? That uh, in a real simplistic fashion that this is a story that is much bigger than OJ, first and foremost. Sure. But that everything in terms of who OJ was and his ambition, sort of, you know, he was created by us. Mm-hmm. And this story is as much us as it is him. And it can only be explained um, by his relationship to this country in which he grew up in. Um, but, you know, I think even it speaks to everything that sort of happened between his life, but everything that happened in terms of why people were so fascinated with the trial. There are so many of these things, everything that it touches on, that are so profoundly and uniquely American. Everything about this story about race and celebrity, our culture, and everything else, it's such a profound American tale. So that's why it's called O.J. Made America. Ezra Edelman is the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, O.J. Made in America. Thank you so much for doing this, Ezra. I appreciate you, man. Thank you, Dream. Appreciate it. All right, y'all, that's our show. And we're going to take a break next week. Trust me, we need it. But in the meantime, we want to let you know about another podcast that we partnered with, The Sporkful from WNYC Studios. Our Code Switch teammate Kat Chow joined them for an episode about race and restaurants. It's called Who Is This Restaurant For? Part 1, Us Versus Them. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter at nprcodeswitch. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Our producer is Walter Ray Watson. Alicia Montgomery and Tazneem Raja edited this episode. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch family. My co-hosts Shireen Marisol Maraji, Adrian Florido, Karen Grisby-Bates, Kat Chow, and Leah Danella. Original music by Rom Team Arab Louie. We'll see you all in two weeks. Be easy. Be easy.